This episode is sponsored by Linode. Linode is offering listeners of this podcast a $20 credit, which is good for four free months at their lowest plan. Their plans start at one gigabyte of RAM for $5 a month. You can get your servers in any of their 10 data centers, and their high memory plans start at 16 gigabytes. Get a server running in under a minute. They do hourly billing with a monthly cap on all plans and add-on services like backups, node balancers, long view, etc. VMs for full control, running Docker containers, encrypted disks, VPNs, etc. You can run a private Git server. They provide native SSD storage, 200 gigabit network, and Intel E5 processors. They have 24-7 friendly support, even on holidays, and a seven-day money-back guarantee. So go check them out at leno.com slash ifreaks. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the iFreaks show. Today on our show, we have Key Rambo. Hello from Brazil. Andrew Madsen. Hello from Salt Lake City. And this is James Uber. I'm from snowy Minneapolis. So we don't have a guest today, but we were talking about what we wanted, what we could discuss for the show, and Andrew had some pretty cool things he's been working on with a project uh, where he's actually doing data transfer through the audio port of the, of the iPhone, which I had heard some people are doing it, but I, I don't know that much about it. So we thought we'd go over it and see what uh, how it's gone for him. So Andrew, can you tell us a little bit about what you were trying to accomplish? Yeah, so I, this has actually been for a, a client project I've been working on, and they have a piece of custom hardware that they want to be able to communicate with, but they can't use uh, Bluetooth. It needs to be a hardwired connection. And so that really the only other option um, you know, that's sort of like Apple supported is to use the lightning connector. But to do that, you have to be in the made for iPhone program, which is quite a quite a thing. Uh, but, that, but there's another way to do this that people have actually been doing since the very early days of iOS, which is to use the audio port to actually send and receive data. And you don't need any special, um, you know, approval from Apple. Uh, the hardware, to the, the actual interface hardware, like the cable that you would make to go between your device and your and your iPhone is pretty simple. It's just a few parts. Um, it's not really fast, but it, but it's a pretty easy, simple way to get data in and out of the iPhone. So what do you do? Do you like say bool one customer ID equals Z Q S and like record that and send it out? What how does this work? <laughs> yeah, you oh. use speech recognition. No, there I mean you could actually come up with quite a few um ways to send data over audio. Uh and there but there are some some really well established ones. If you actually think about uh dial up internet when people used modems over the phone lines, that was a f- effectively, especially in the early days, that was just really just using audio to send data. Um, the, the, the common standard that people have used is something called Bell 202 and Bell in Bell 202 is like Bell Telephone Company, Alexander Graham Bell. So it's a, it's an old standard. I'm not exactly sure when it came out, but it's, it's, it's actually basically, um, just a specific implementation of something called frequency shift keying. So frequency shift keying in its simplest form, and that's the form that Bell 202 uses is you just have two different frequencies that you use. So you can really pick any frequencies you want. Um, I use, I like, I can't remember exactly, 4,900 hertz and uh, 7,350 7, hertz, which both of those are, you know, tones you can hear. Um, and each tone represents, one One of the tones represents a zero and the other tone represents a one. So you can control whether you're sending a zero or a one based on which uh, or what frequency the audio um, going out of your iPhone is. 
Okay, so if I understand this right, so it's similar to like how a modem works in, in the past, right? Yeah, I, I, I later, you know, um, more modern modem protocols got really sophisticated and complicated because they wanted to send uh, data as quickly as possible over the phone lines, and they had to do some really um, tricky stuff to get up to you know fifty six k baud, which was the highest they ever got, but. But yeah, f fundamentally, the idea is that you just encode data using audio and send that over a regular audio connection. So if it's like a modem, what happens when your mom wants to use your phone while you're playing Trade Wars? <laughs> well, this actually was an issue, not really related to actually sending the data back and forth. But of course, if you're using the audio port to send data in your app, you can't really use the built-in speakers for anything. Uh, I mean, you kind of can, but that gets a little tricky because you have to control the audio route. Um, to control whether your app is putting data out through the speakers or through the headphone jack, which is normally something you don't think about. You just let iOS handle it. And you also can't, you know, you, you can't play data, play, uh, music through the headphone jack while you're trying to send data. It won't really work very well. So there are some limitations. Um, luckily for the project I was working on, those didn't really matter. They didn't care about audio coming out of the speakers. Um, nor did they care about, you know, being able to play music in the background or something while this app was running. How does this work on newer iPhones that don't have the headphone jack? Do you use the normal lightning part? Does it provide audio? Yeah, so I should actually say that the project I was working on was specifically for the iPad, where iPads all still have headphone jacks, so that wasn't an issue. But I did do some testing on my iPhone, and it works fine with the um, lightning to headphone adapter that comes in the box. So when you're talking about frequency shift keying, and that's a term I have not heard in a very long time, probably when I was in college studying digital communications. Do you have to deal with that stuff yourself? Is there a library that helps you out? Well, that's a really good question. So there are actually two libraries that I found when I first set out to do this. I, I'm generally kind of skeptical of libraries, but this was a client project. They wanted it done quickly, and it, and it actually started out sort of as a proof of concept prototype type thing that I was working on. So I found this library um, uh, called JMFSK. Um, that somebody wrote a few years ago, um, specifically wrote it to to go along with an Arduino library that's out there that does the same thing. Uh, but he wrote an iOS library for doing this this FSK stuff. Uh, it's out there. You can use it. Unfortunately, I don't think it's very well written. In particular, I found it had quite a few um, multi-threading bugs that caused real problems, and it didn't seem like anybody had used it for anything too serious. It's kind of a hobby project that somebody put out there, and you know that was the end of it. Um, there's another library that was written by uh, another guy in in 2008, so it's really, really early. And I actually think that the JMFSK modem is basically just a continuation of that earlier library, but it has a lot of the same sorts of problems. I think basically whoever wrote it was pretty new to iOS and you know didn't quite understand all of the uh, stuff that he needed to understand to make that work really well. After all, audio programming is pretty hard, and those libraries both use core audio. So in the end, I ended up writing my own uh, library from scratch to get around some of those problems. How do you work around transmission issues? Do you have like integrity checks with a CRC or something to guarantee that the data you're sending out is going to go out correctly and reach the other end? Yeah, so uh, that that's a that's a really good question. It's something that I think people that are thinking about using this should understand from the beginning. It's it's 
it's not a super reliable communication method for reasons that we can go into, but you will have errors. Uh, and so Bell 202 as a standard doesn't say anything about, you know, error checking or anything like that. It's a very low level standard that basically just defines the frequencies you use. Um, so if you're going to, if you're going to use this, you do need to build some kind of error checking or error correction mechanism into your, uh, into your system. I just went with a pretty simple um, two-byte checksum that I put on every packet of data that goes out so that the other end can can at least do something to verify that the packet it got was correct. And then I also had a pretty well-defined packet structure with a start byte and a payload and you know the checksum and a packet type and an end byte. And all of that meant that there were quite a few chances for the receiving code to check to see if what it got made sense. And um, to, to check to see if there was an error. So, but that code, you know, it does find an error somewhat often. So I also had to build in retry logic. So like if an error occurs, it will try again. Okay. So you're doing things like you're designing the protocol basically that works on top of Bell 202 that your, your app understands the different data types and how it communicates. It sounds like if, if your CRC check doesn't match, then you just, Hey, send us again. You just try it again. Is that is that right? Yep, that's exactly right. So I made it. Uh, I, this was partly also defined by the client, but I made it so that every uh, command that you might send out to the hardware um, has a response that comes back from the hardware, so that both devices can tell if if everything succeeded. And you know, if the iOS device sends a command to the hardware and does not get the get a response or doesn't get the correct response, it knows something went wrong and it just retries. What's the actual hardware on the other side of this? Can you tell us about it? Uh, what sort of, of device is it and why, what's it running? Yeah, I can. I, I probably shouldn't say too much about exactly what it's doing, but it's it's a microcontroller. It's an ARM, uh, ARM microcontroller. It's not running an operating system. It's programmed with custom firmware. Um, but it, you, you can think of it, it's, it's the same kind of thing you'd have if you wanted to hook an Arduino up. It's not... Uh, it's not an Arduino, but it's very, very much along those lines. Just a simple microcontroller with fairly simple firmware controlling some um, um, more or less some relays and things. So it's not it's not another computer. It's not, uh, you know, anything with a high level operating system. So I guess the data you send it must be pretty simple, right? How are you actually structuring your data? Um, well, there's another there's another interesting thing there uh, in that yes, the data is pretty simple. I send um, to each each packet has an eight byte payload, so eight bytes of data, and then a little bit of header and footer and checksum and that kind of thing around it. So the total size is is quite small. Uh, but for a couple reasons, I actually we actually decided to encode that data as as ASCII. Um, so we send the ASCII. We send ASCII that represents the data in hex, which is, is nice for a couple of reasons. One, it means that you can actually look at, you, you know, you can just use print or NS log or something to print out the received data as a string and see what the data is. Uh, but it also means that you have a limited character set, a limited character set. So by using ASCII encoded hex, you know that all of the, all of the bytes coming through in the payload are either going to be zero through nine or A through F. Any other characters are invalid. That's another error checking uh, 
another um, opportunity to to check for errors. Uh, but it also means you can often recover from errors because very often what happens is you just lose one bit. You just get one bit wrong and it changes um, one of your bytes to a character that's outside of that accepted range. But you can just find the closest one that is inside the accepted range. You know, it's only off by one bit or whatever. Replace it. Make sure your checksum's still right. And if that happens, then you, you basically have a built-in way to correct simple errors. At least, uh, you know, if you only lose one bit. And and that only worked because we limited the the, the uh, set of bytes that can be transmitted. And if your device on the other end has serial, which most microcontrollers do have, you can actually hook it up to a serial monitor and just log everything to the serial monitor. That'd be cool to check if the data is being received correctly. Yeah, exactly. So uh, you you just if you're working on this kind of small microcontroller without a without an operating system, without a screen, that kind of thing. Um, if you're lucky, you work in a development environment that has a debugger, uh, and, and we were using a, a IDE with a debugger. Um, but like, if you're just using the Arduino tools, there's no built-in debugger, but you can just hook up a serial monitor and basically use print statements to print debug stuff out to the serial monitor. And you know, it's it's caveman debugging, but it but it actually works pretty well. So I want to talk a little bit more about the the error correction you put in. So I, I studied this way back in the day. I don't recall the method you're talking about. So you'll take, you'll have an ASCII character. You know, you're assuming, or you're hoping it'll be off by one if something's not in range. So you just go through all the bits and flip them to, to see if one gets into the in, into a good range, which passes your CRC check. Yep, that's basically it. But you only, you know, you only do that if you saw a character that was not in the right range. So this is sort of a fallback. Um, basically we started out not doing that. We thought, uh, I wonder if we can improve this. If we had an error, we would just always, that would always cause the, um, command to retry, but we thought, well, it'd be nice if it didn't have to retry if instead we could just correct the error in place. And so that's what we came up with. Yep. Just flip one bit at a time. See if you get something that's now valid and then recheck the checksum because you figure if the checksum's right, then if the checksum matches, then you're then you're good. Then you're good to go. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a number of ways you can do self-correcting CRC checks. I'm wondering, is that one of the common ones? Did you do some research on it, or is that just one you came up with? I made it up on my own. I don't know. All right. I don't know what I'm doing. That's the kind of you should you should you should, you should publish an IEEE paper. You're good. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, you know, name a star after you, Andrew. Right. As with so many other things, you start out simple, and you only get complex if you need to. And I didn't quite get to the I'm going to go read technical papers on this stuff from 40 years ago and figure out how to do this. I got to the, oh, it's working. We're good. Stage. So what, like, what other type of applications are using this technology? Like, what else can we use it for? Well, you know, I think probably the, the, the biggest use that our listeners would care about is just if you've got a little Arduino project and you want to control it with your um, iPad or iPhone and you don't have Bluetooth or don't want to use it for some reason, uh, this is a really simple, cheap, easy way to do it that doesn't require any specialized hardware on either end. Um, so, so I think hobbyist projects are probably the the biggest place. But this same underlying idea is actually used in the in the square reader, um, the and and other kinds of credit card readers. You notice those plug into the audio jack. They're actually not active. Uh, they don't ha have to have powered electronics in them, which is interesting. But they're doing the same kind of thing, right? They're reading data from a credit card. 
through the audio port. Now, when you mentioned Bluetooth, I mean, there's a lot of reasons you wouldn't want to use Bluetooth because it's just a pain to work with. Um, like, how is the audio? Is the connection pretty easy? Do you have the same type of problems you have with Bluetooth? Oh, connection's good because it's solid. It's hardwired. Uh, can't really lose signal strength or anything like that. The only problem I ever had is that if you forget that you turned the volume all the way down on your device, things don't work so well. So you do have to make the, sure the volume on the device is turned up. Sounds like a new tech support default question. Is your device volume turned up? Yeah, I'm not sure I would advocate, you know, uh, putting this out there in something that was going to go out to consumers that are that they're going to have to set this up and use it, um, unless you're prepared to deal with stuff like that. But the same is really kind of true of Bluetooth, right? You you are going to have tech support stuff if you if you have a hardware device that's connecting to an iOS app because Bluetooth is flaky, or this audio thing, people are going to have their volume turned down, or you know, if you use Wi-Fi, we all know that that networking can be tough and um, I was lucky in that it was for a client where they're not they're not putting it on the app store and selling it to a million people. It's kind of an internal business use sort of thing. A big thanks to Microsoft for sponsoring this episode of iFreaks to promote the App Center, a continuous integration, delivery, and feedback suite of cloud services for Swift and Objective-C apps. With App Center, you can automate your iOS and macOS development lifecycle, build, test, distribute, monitor, and push to ship five-star, high-quality apps faster and with confidence. Building a development pipeline in your iOS apps has always been a challenge, but with App Center, you can get started in minutes. Simply connect your GitHub and Bitbucket repos and build in the cloud, test on thousands of real iOS devices, distribute to beta testers and Apple's App Store, and monitor real-world usage with crash and analytics data. As a fully modular suite of services, you can pick and choose the service you need and connect it to the tools you already use. Sign up now on appcenter.ms and spend less time managing your app lifecycle and more time coding. So what other things do you learn about the project? About well, the yeah, I mean, I the thing I learned a ton about is because I had to, because I had to write my own library after sort of giving up on the one that, that was already out there, I, I learned how to do the FSK uh, modulation and demodulation. And, and there, that was actually, there was actually a lot to learn there. Um, you know, I took digital signal processing in college as well, but I, barely remember any of it because I've never actually used it since then um, in any real significant way. And uh, the writing, the, writing the modulation part, the part that actually sends data from the iOS device is not all that difficult. You can imagine that if you can just, if you know how to generate audio at two different frequencies, you just can go step through the data you want to send bit by bit and switch between two tones. The hard part is the demodulation because you have audio coming in and you need to somehow convert that back into data. Uh, so that, that took, that took a while and a bit of thinking. So what are you doing? You setting up filters that listen for the, the different frequencies. Um, how does that work? So I started to sort of run down that, um, Avenue and that's what, if you, if you go read, uh, the literature on FSK demodulation, that's a lot of what you'll find. Um, and, and those things are using filters like that are, uh, pretty easy to set up in hardware, which is, I think, why they're out there because, you know, earlier FSK demodulation schemes were just done in hardware, not in something like an iOS device. We're talking about even in the, you know, 60s, 70s, that kind of thing. Uh, 
I, I, st- I sort of started down that doing like real DSP with filters, but it was complicated and I don't remember all that stuff. And at some point I thought, well, you know, if I look at this audio coming in, like if I open it in an audio editor, I can pretty easily see what's going on. I should be able to write some code that takes the audio coming in and does the same sort of thing that I do when I look at it. Um, and so I did that. And I'm, I'm not sure what I did is something that, you know, you'd find out there in the standard standard literature. Uh, and it, it's different than what the library I was looking at did, but it, but it works pretty well. Um, and I can talk a little bit about that, about how it actually works. I'm curious. Let's get into the DSP weeds. So when you receive audio in an iOS app or in a Mac app for that matter, you just get big buffers full of sample data. You basically just get big, long lists of numbers, and each number is a sample. Um, it's the value of the audio at a given point in time. And there are 44,100 of those samples per second. So that's the data you're working with to start with. This is just sort of basic digital audio stuff. And somehow you have to take this big list of numbers, figure out uh, at any given time what frequency is there, and, and also be able to see where the frequency changes to a different frequency, to the other, other tone. So I used something called a zero cross detector, which is a pretty common uh, sort of audio demodulation thing. A zero cross detector just watches for the for the waveform to to cross through zero to go, to change from positive to negative, or negative to positive. And if you think about a full waveform of just a a sine wave, a pure audio tone, you have two zero crossings in a full waveform: one that's positive going and one that's negative going. So if you look for both of those, you can figure out where a full waveform happened. And based on how long or how far apart those zero crosses are, you can figure out the wavelength, which is, of course, directly proportional to the frequency. So I used a zero cross detector fundamentally to determine um, the frequency of the incoming data. And then it, it, it tur- that, that makes it sound easier than it really is because you, that, that data is not going to be perfect, uh, number one. Um, sometimes you'll get zero crosses that you don't expect because of noise. So you have to reject, uh, if you, if you detect a frequency that's way lower or way higher than either of the two tones that you're expecting, you have to reject it. Um, so you do that and with a little, a little bit of work along those lines, you can sort of get down to where you're only detecting the two tones that, that you expect for that FSK. Did you notice any big difference between devices, different devices and different setups, different cables and such? Um, not, not in terms of uh, noise that actually affected the, the system working, but I did notice that if you unplug the cable altogether and you just have the, uh, if you're just running the, um, the built-in microphone, and, and I even tried to get this to work just through the air instead of through a cable, uh, that doesn't work very well because there's so much noise and just noise from the room and, you know, noise from anything going on will kind of upset it. So it definitely only works hardwired. And I didn't, I, I, the cable I'm, I've used is only, I don't know, like a foot long. So you might have trouble if you're trying to run this over hundreds of feet potentially. Yeah. When you get longer cables, you get a whole different class of errors. Um, like, for, like, did you have to do any, um, 
I forget the name of the term, but like typically when you send something over the wire at high speeds, like you don't just send the ones and zeros by themselves because you could easily get a bunch of ones and a bunch of zeros, which causes weird magnetic magnetism type problems. Um, did you do anything like that? I know what you're talking about. Uh, no, I, I didn't have to do anything like that on the iOS side, but on the hardware side, I know that the engineer that was working on that did have to deal with that. So they actually had a, we, we didn't change the format of the data. Um, there's something called Manchester code that basically fixes that where you balance out the ones and zeros over time. So you don't have bias in the electrical bias in the system, but they actually had a circuit, um, that would lock onto the center point of the audio. So even if there was a, a bias on the audio signal, it wouldn't, it wouldn't cause demodulation to fail. That is something to think about, but I don't think it's likely to be a major issue as long as you're, um, at these relatively, it's not that the data rate is low. It's that the, uh, total duty cycle, the total amount of time that you spend sending data is pretty low. I don't think you're likely to have a big problem with that. Okay. I think it was called channel coding channel. I can't remember so long ago, but fun stuff. Definitely. If you, send a ton of data over the wire you do have to think about that stuff because you get weird effects and you know when you're spending high when you're sending high speed data like a wire it's not just a wire anymore it's a weird capacitor type thing and yep a lot of weird stuff happens like especially when you're going like rf frequencies then you're getting like, even odder weird stuff happens yeah um, so it sounds you, like if you really want to dig into that you look at the stuff that they've done to get cable cable tv cable to uh, be faster and faster for broadband internet because they've done it's, it's super, super sophisticated signal processing and modulation scheme design to get that to actually work. Luckily, we're talking about data rates. I think the data rate we're using is like 1,200 baud. So it's slow, slow, slow. But we only needed that because we're sending just basically just on-off commands, like turn this relay on, on or off, turn this relay on or off. So you don't need very much data for that. And that's common. That That's what you'd be doing if you're just talking to some simple hardware device, you know, you're turning lights on and off or something like that. Uh, it, you could even imagine a lot of home automation type systems don't really need to send much data back and forth. This is certainly not something you'd use to stream video or anything like that. Okay. Yeah, 1200 baud. That's like a, what's 1986 modem. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was, like that. that was really great in 1986 or 1987. Of course, you, back then that was a lot harder for modems because they were sending them over phone lines that were, you know, miles and miles and miles long with varying, um, problems, and, you know, they're old. When you're sending them over a one foot, nicely built audio cable, things are much simpler. For sure. So, uh, what are we missing? What else should we talk about, about the audio data transfer? Um, what yeah? What should we talk about? I think that uh, I think one thing that I, we haven't talked about is that this is pretty slow. You can hear these data transmissions; they're only a few few bytes long, but you can actually hear them at twelve hundred baud. They they sound like a little chirp kind of thing, and uh, so you definitely would not use this for some, anything that needed to go really fast. Um, that was completely fine in our case. I can remember like using a 1200 baud modem back in the day and you could almost keep, you could almost read it. Like whatever it printed out, you could almost read fast enough. Not quite, but almost. Yeah. I have a, uh, I sometimes connect my old computers to, there, there are still people out there running BBSs and I'll, you, you can run it 300 baud. Um, I, I, I think the last time I was doing this, I was running at 300 baud, which is slower, of course, it's a quarter of the speed, but, 
yeah, you, you wait for the screen to fill with text and it takes a while. Yeah, 300 baht, definitely you're waiting. You're like, okay, this is going slowly. I mean, if you that think about experience. it, yeah, that's about a tweet's worth of text every second. That's not very fast. Where would you recommend people go to actually learn how to use these low-level audio APIs? Is there a resource for that? Because I try to learn them, and I actually can do one or two things using Core Audio, but it's quite hard to get started. Do you know of any resources for that? That's a really, really good question. I sometimes feel like Core Audio is still the black magic part of the iOS APIs that only a very few people know how to use. Um, I learned it uh, partly, I, I mean, my introduction to it was through a book called Learning Core Audio by former guest Chris Adamson and Kevin Avila. And they that book is still out there. I don't think they've updated it for Swift, but to be honest with you, I think using Core Audio in Swift is a bit of a bad idea. I think it's a lot easier to use Core Audio with Objective-C. Um, so that, that's actually where I would start. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of it is just you have to try this stuff and struggle and get errors that you don't understand. Um, for this particular library, I used an API called Audio Q Services, which is uh, about as high level as Core Audio gets. It's still a C API, but you have to do you don't have to do nearly as much stuff just to get audio coming in and out. And um, I can well, we can we can put a link in the show notes to. Uh, um, a GitHub project that uses audio queue services. There, there are quite a few out there, but um, the audio queues make make playing and re and recording audio pretty simple. And and I use them for for this uh, this library that I wrote because of that. There, there another thing that makes Core Audio difficult is that at least for the um, playback part of it, if you're generating audio to play, you're not supposed to use Objective C in um, in core audio callbacks, which is where you actually generate the audio that's going out. So you, you really have to know C pretty well if you're going to use core audio, unless you use Swift. But I, I don't fully understand the performance implications of Swift, so I'm wary about using it for core audio stuff beyond the fact that I think syntax is weird. Once you're manipulating pointers, using Swift is really a pain. I tried, but I always go back to to see because when you need to dereference pointers, the pointer and uh, arithmetics and that kind of stuff, it gets pretty complicated. Yeah, same. I, I actually, the last, uh, or the, I'm, I'm working on it now, but I have a personal app that I'm working on that makes he very heavy use of, of audio and uh, AV Foundation and Core Audio. And there's a lot of pointer stuff that's required to use AV Foundation and Core Audio. And I, I started writing it in Swift and it just... I got it working, but it was just so much code dealing with pointers and um, that was, I just knew if I rewrote it in Objective-C, it would be way easier to deal with and read. And I think you're exactly right. Swift has traded safety for convenience in terms of pointers, and that's a decent trade-off, but it does mean that if you kind of know what you're doing, it's much more painful to use pointers in Swift than in C. And to be clear, Core Audio just requires you. There's no way to write Core Audio code without using pointers a lot. Yeah, it basically gives you a buffer list and you write to the buffer and, and that becomes audio. Is that right? Yeah, so audio queue services for 
output, um, you set up a, a buffer list, a uh, buffer queue, and you just, um, it, it, it calls a callback and says, here's a buffer, please fill it up with data. But really all the buffer is, is a pointer to a block of memory. So you have to fill that up using whatever method you want, but generally you're using pretty low level sort of, uh, mem copy or a big for loop that generates the data or, or however you get you want to get your data in there it's a pointer that you get and you have to fill up and if you screw up you get punished with terrible screeching noises yeah uh it, it is actually pretty easy to tell if you've got it right or not because you just run the app and if your ears if your eardrums blow out well you got it wrong it either works or it doesn't then yeah. there's no middle ground yep you either hear something horrible or silence, or you hear what you wanted to hear. Um, that's actually not quite true because you can, of course, have subtle problems that cause little glitches, but they're still pretty easy to pretty easy to hear. So that that part's nice. Fixing them can be less nice. How oh, cool! Anything else we should cover before we get to the picks? I don't think so. I unfortunately I asked to, to open source the library I wrote, but the client didn't want to. Um, I even offered to give it to him free if I could open source it, but unfortunately that wasn't uh, what they wanted to do. But I've thought about... Ooh. Uh, yeah. I I would have done it. They would have had to pay me a lot less money than they are paying me, but whatever. Uh, I have I have thought about doing sort of a clear, clean room rewrite uh, um, of, an, of a, the same kind of library and open sourcing it because I think there's room for one with the two that are out there not being perfect. Yeah, that'd be cool. I'd like to see it. If you want to see it, send me a an email or tweet at me or something. If there are enough people interested in it, I'll do it. Well, cool. Let's get to the picks. Want to automatically build, test, and release your iOS and macOS apps? Try App Center. Connect your repo within minutes, build in the cloud, test on thousands of real iOS devices, distribute to beta testers and Apple's App Store, and monitor real-world usage with crash and analytics data. Spend less time managing your app lifecycle and more time coding. Visit appcenter.ms and get started for free. Guy, what do you have for us? I'm actually going to pick something that's not particularly useful, but it's very interesting and it's related kind of to the subject of today's show. Um, someone managed to transmit AM radio using any computer without any radio transmitting hardware. Basically, making the CPU perform specific instructions and the interference generated by the CPU executing the instructions generates AM radio, which is pretty crazy. So I'm going to put the link in the show notes and it's really, really interesting. Very cool. Andrew, what do you have? Uh, I've got three picks and my first one's actually uh, my first one's kind of continuing off what Guy said i saw that too go around and i thought it was really cool especially i thought it was cool because i think the the code that he wrote is cross-platform it's not really that dependent on the specific hardware you're running it on either uh but it but it reminded me that that's not actually a new idea at all because i had read about how when the altair 8800 was a was out which was kind of widely considered the first at least commercially successful personal computer um, people played music on that and they did it by 
causing AM to be transmitted by the computer itself without extra hardware. So that, that idea has literally been around as long as personal computers have been around. So I'll actually link to a video of the Altair 8800 playing music over an 80, over an AM uh, radio. Um, my second pick is, uh, today is the, tw- or the 30, oh man, the 34th anniversary of the original Mac going on sale. And if you have never used an original Mac and want to see what it was like, there's a, a really good emulator called mini V Mac. That's a, it runs on, on a modern Mac and, um, emulates an old Mac and you can run every version of the Macintosh system software up to 7.5.5. Um, see how it worked and see what changed over the years. And it's pretty cool. So that's my second pick. And then my last pick is a project called soft modem. This goes directly along with what we were talking about. Soft modem is a, is a library for Arduino that does this FSK communication we've talked about. So if you've got an Arduino and you want to, you know, start working on this, this whole commu- communicate with iOS over the, over the audio port, this soft modem library for Arduino makes that a lot easier because you don't have to write the, the, the FSK demodulation and, and modulation code on the Arduino. Those are my picks. Very cool. Yeah, we'll put those links in the show notes. And I'm going to have one pick today. So I made a, a modem joke about Trade Wars, which is one of the earliest games you'd play in a modem. And you, uh, I, I had to explain this because people, geeks my age, know what I'm talking about. But if you're, say, under 30, like you've never seen a modem and you didn't realize houses had one phone line. And if you on the phone, if you, if you were on your modem playing a game or whatever and your mom wanted to use the phone, she just picked it up and she got an awful screech and your call got messed up usually. So this was a common thing for geeks back in the day, uh, late 80s, early 90s. Um, but you can still play Trade Wars. It's out there. Like You can tell it into servers that have it running with the old PBS softwares. There's some web versions out there. Um, so if you want to party like the kids in... What's the show? What's the 80s show? Guy. The Monsters. Guy was even Monsters? alive in the 80s. No, the TV show just came out. The kids are in the 80s. The geeky oh, kids. Stranger Things. Stranger Things. If you want to party like those kids, you can do it still. Um, yeah, just play some Trade Wars. I'm sure they were definitely into it. Um, so that's my pick. Um, I've tried to get back into it. I've just never been able to, but it's fun to hack around a little bit. So that's my pick. Um, I thought it was a cool episode. I hope our audience agrees, even though we got a little bit into the weeds of some stuff that is not core iOS development, but I thought it was cool stuff. Uh, thanks, Andrew. Um, I enjoyed it. Thanks, guys. Thanks. We'll see you all next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.